Hello and welcome to our online event, the long-term impact of the COVID-19 crisis on the Euro area. Uh, today's event is hosted by the European Institute uh, and in particular it's part of our European Question discussion paper series, the LEX, L-E-Q-S, uh, discussion paper series, which is available from the European Institute's uh, webpage here at the LSE. My name is Kevin Featherstone, and I'm a professor in the European Institute. So how might the Eurozone come out of the COVID crisis? The European Union has launched its European Recovery and Resilience uh, Facility the next generation EU, and the Commission's websites currently uh, boldly declares, and I quote, this is more than a recovery plan. It is, once, it is a once-in-a-lifetime chance to emerge stronger from the pandemic, transform our economies, create opportunities and jobs for the Europe where we want to live. We have everything to make this happen. We have the vision, we have the plan, and we have agreed to invest 750 billion euro together. It's now time to get to work to make Europe greener, more digital and more resilient. Well, in our discussion, we're going to assess how resilient the Eurozone was going into the COVID crisis and how it is coming out of the COVID uh, crisis. I'm delighted to welcome our speaker, Paul Thompson, Paul is now a colleague and uh, a visiting professor in the European Institute at the LSD. Until recently, Paul was the director of the International Monetary Fund's European Department. Uh, Paul worked at the IMF for almost 40 years, working almost exclusively on Europe. And on behalf of the IMF, he was responsible for the design and negotiation of the bailout programs for Greece and Portugal. And he was the fund's main interlocutor with the European Central Bank and the European Commission within the Troika framework. I very much look forward to hearing his views on how the Eurozone got here and where it's going. Before we begin though, let me make a few housekeeping announcements. For those using Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSECOVID19. Let me also say that uh, today's online event is being recorded and we hope to make it available as a podcast for download later, uh, subject to any technical uh, problems. To get us going, we're going to begin with a presentation from Poole. I'll then ask him a few questions and we'll leave time for you, the audience, to send us your questions uh, for Poole to respond. On too. You can send us your questions by using the Q&A facility at the bottom of your uh, screen. Uh, so let's get started and let me give a very warm welcome to my colleague Paul Thompson. Over to you Paul. Uh, thank you very much uh, for, for the warm welcome and good evening to all of you. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the impact of, of COVID-19 on the euro area. It's somewhat of a historical perspective, as in I, I look at it, uh, given my background, uh, given what I know about what, is drive, what was driving euro area policies before uh, COVID. So let's, uh, uh, no, let's, let's, get, let's get started. And uh, 
uh, I have a, few, a number of slides I want want to, to show you. This first one here uh, is a uh, is a particularly interesting one. Uh, it shows the public debt to GDP for the so-called frugal four in Germany, uh, and uh, for the euro areas, five southern high debt countries, and here I include France. As you see, both groups allow public debt to rise during recessions as they cushion their economies through countercyclical fiscal stimulus. But while northern countries reverse this rise during the subsequent recovery, high debt countries generally do not. In fact, France, Portugal and Greece, as you can see, have not only failed to withdraw uh, fiscal stimulus, but at times been inclined to continue with some stimulus during the recovery. Now, this difference uh, uh, has clearly also been exacerbated by the very fast recovery of lost fiscal space by Germany, Netherlands and others during after the euro area crisis. But this is really a sort of one time problem compared to the big structural deficits that's driving the debt in the high debt countries. Take the case of France. Uh, France have seen an explosive increase in debt since 1980, uh, 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 a five-doubling until the, the eve of, of, of COVID. The debt to GDP never goes down. In the years of very strong growth, it's, it's flat. Otherwise, it's increasing, increasing fast uh, uh, during crisis. So this is a long-standing problem. But the euro area has exacerbated uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the problem, the, the monetary windfall associated with euro adoption, the low interest rates, and again, the even lower interest rates following the global financial crisis uh, uh, ha have accelerated the increase in debt in, 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 in these uh, countries. Take a look at, at, at this slide here. So something that is actually quite extraordinary, and that is that these countries entered the euro crisis with debt at the same elevated level at which they had exited the, the, the previous crisis, despite a very strong or long recovery in the, in the meantime. Take the case of Spain. Spain saw an increase in debt from the eve of the, of the, of, of, of the global financial crisis until the, the debt peak after the euro crisis of 65% of, of GDP. It was a welcome use of fiscal space to cushion the shock. But by the eve of the, of the COVID crisis, it had only reduced this by 5% of, of GDP, even though in the meantime, it has strong, very strong growth of 3% uh, uh, or more annually. France and Italy did even less to, uh, 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 to, to restore fiscal, fiscal space. So one, one conclusion that I think we'd be mindful about going forward and talking about policy reform is that these high debt countries uh, suffered austerity because of lack of public sector reform, not about because of adherence to EU's uh, fiscal fiscal rules. Low growth has caused stagnation in revenues and forced spending cuts. And much too often such cuts have fallen disproportionately on the socially weak or have been had adverse uh, implication for growth because other groups have successfully resisted reforms that will reduce their share of the pie. Capital spending has been particularly hard hit. 
the reduction in capital spending during this period is three times higher, reduction in invest, public investments, three times higher than in the euro area at last, at large. Quite strikingly, I, an IMF story, study of the post uh, euro area period found that uh, uh, the pension replacement rates in the EU has risen since the euro, euro area crisis, while the risk of falling into poverty among the youngs have gone up dramatically while gone down for pensioners, fundamentally reflecting that uh, uh, some groups have successfully resisted pension reform, costs have fallen on education, child allowances, etc. So this is one point we need to be aware of when we talk about policies post-COVID. Post, post, uh, uh, Very quickly, I'll come back to that. What really has happened is that these countries have used the windfall from, from lower interest rates uh, to expand primary spending rather than to, to reduce debt. As the recovery got underway, these countries also stopped broader reforms uh, to deal with the underlying vulnerabilities. These reforms had been launched during the Euro crisis and, and they were stopped after the crisis when there were no longer political pressure to do so. In Greece and Italy even went further by undoing some of the most important reforms. It's not surprising reforms here had been put in place uh, by technocratic governments that had been installed under pressure from the Europeans and therefore had particularly little legitimacy. Italy during this period emerged as a potential serious risk as it was too big to be bailed out by the ESM and, and relied on, 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 on fragile market access. It became clear during this period that there is no support within the sort of Italian mainstream for the policies needed to bring down debt. But Europe, and that everybody was painfully aware of that, but Europe has no, no way of, of dealing with that issue. Now, these developments at the national levels were facilitated by the Eurogroup in 2014, returning to the status quo and of essentially accommodating national policy. Juncker uh, campaigned on a slogan to get back to a political commission, <clears throat> and, and that's what Europe got. That is not a criticism. I don't intend to mean this as a criticism. I see this as a natural state of affairs in a currency union that is not a political union and that doesn't make progress towards political union. Now, basically during this period, we, we saw that two fundamental assumptions underlying the euro do not hold up so far. This notion that if you adopt a common currency, that will sort of put you in an anomalous straitjacket that will force you to overcome resistance of reforms to reforms. We have, that has not happened. Secondly, the notion that, that this will promote political integration to ensure consistency between domestic policies and national, European objectives. We have not seen this either. And the Troika, and I am very much associated with the Troika, as, as, as you know, clearly did not have such political legitimacy. So, Europe, uh, uh, what about market expectations? Europe has, has, has uh, time and again produced uh, debt sustainability analysis that basically shows no problem. Fundamentally, I don't think these projections are, are, are credible. They are used by over many, many years, uh, extending projection periods over many, many years, uh, uh, often 
almost always using assumptions about growth that assumes reform for which there in the present is no political support, hoping that it will come over the long term. But more important, such predictions are essentially meaningless. Any, any solvency problem can be turned into a more benign liquidity problem if you extend the uh, uh, prediction period for sufficiently long. Creditors will, no, creditors would not accept this normally because they know that the country would be a sitting duck just waiting with debt up there at you know, 100, 200% to be blown off course by the next shock. But they had been willing to accept it for the Eurozone to the extent that they, they feel, they, they, they feel uh, confident that policies will be accommodating, that will facilitate uh, 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 the countries to repay uh, debt. This brings me to monetary policy. The ECB's whatever it takes definitely saved the euro, but it does also facilitate the further increase in debt uh, uh, in vulnerable countries that, incre that increase the risk to future uh, crisis. The ECB did what is normal for central banks and currency unions, which is to support the sovereign in the case of crisis. That's why the ECB's action has been particularly uh, praised in countries and in the Anglo-Saxon world that is used to currency unions, also political unions. Problem is, of course, that the euro area is not a political union and that easy money does cause vulnerabilities. But this is not a criticism of the ECB. The ECB cannot substitute for the missing political body that should be sitting in, in, in Brussels and take political de uh, decision. If there are problems with this monetary policy, it lies in the familiar problems with the, with the architecture and with the fiscal, with the, with the, with the fiscal uh, rules. Therefore, support for the ECB's policies is a question of the appropriateness of its overall monetary stance. So the sort of the inherent North-South conflicts inside the ECB will have been very muted uh, because there was a strong justification from an overall European uh, perspective uh, for, 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 for the monetary accommodation for QE. Now, as the tensions began to emerge, North-South tensions began to materialize inside the governing council, as the recovery gained momentum and we got to the point where only where output gaps were closed in all but a few countries. This caused concern that the normalization of monetary policy was being delayed because of undue concerns about these vulnerable countries. That rising tension was significant before COVID, but was then again muted by COVID because COVID provided again a rationale, for, obviously, for, for a very accommodating monetary policy. So this is, uh, this is a summary of what I'm, what I'm saying, how I see the euro area. A snapshot of the euro area on the eve of COVID, everybody is basically doing the opposite of what they need to do in terms of reducing vulnerabilities. High debt, uh, high debt countries are doing nothing to restore fiscal pace, nothing to deal with the underlying structural problem. And uh, the northern countries are exacerbating the problem with an unnecessarily fast fiscal adjustment uh, after the euro area crisis. Meanwhile, because of the lack of political integration, the commission has returned to passively endorsing policies. Now, with this, with this as the background, let's talk about COVID. The COVID response is definitely breaking taboos. Uh, 
It is the perfect storm from a Euro area perspective. It's hitting the weakest countries in the South the hardest. And these are not only, it's a harder initial shock, but these are the countries that have much more of a U-turn as opposed to a V-turn recovery uh, for shock. The case for inter-European support is absolutely compelling. Targeted ECB intervention have enabled countries with limited fiscal space to mount a significant counter-cyclical response with no impact on spread. And the fiscal transfers, which are still in the future, will allow them to finance a, a recovery, a robust recovery, by, without having an adverse implication for debt. In the first few weeks of the crisis, Spain, Italy had a rather tentative reaction to the crisis, but with the, because of the limited fiscal space, but with the European support, they've amounted, uh, 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 thankfully, a very strong response. Uh, both the targeted ECB intervention in the, in, in the parlance of the ECB, it's deviation from the capital key, and the debt neutralization are breaking northern taboos. Leaders had no other choice, in my view, having allowed vulnerabilities uh, to build up and bail out expectations to permeate the system during the good years before COVID. And in a deft political mood, move, they made the rescue package as a, presented as a response to a European, uh, uh, to the EU problem. But it's all about the stability of the euro area. It is uh, it's all about preventing an acute crisis in the euro area from compounding the misery, the human misery of the, of, 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 of the pandemic. If it had not been for the EU, this package would have, the timing, size, structure would have been dramatically uh, uh, different. The decision not to require Troika-type conditionality, and that's really a question of the ECB since the, the, the fiscal support is, is, is not there yet, not to activate the OMT was obviously understandable in light of the humanitarian crisis. Now, with that aspect of the crisis waning, we should expect the question of conditions to start coming back on the table. What is, what is striking is that this time around, the support is not linked to the type of reforms that we tried during the euro area uh, uh, crisis, labor market reforms, etc., uh, uh, that were all aimed at reducing uh, North-South structural fragmentation. The support is linked to politically popular investment like green recovery, digitalization, things that are extremely important, uh, that, that, that sort of are, are the, the key challenges uh, facing us, but that have little to do with the North-South structural uh, fragmentation and will have very limited impact on long-term potential growth. Member states are expected to formulate programs that could include some of these programs, but they're not required to adopt them as prior action for disbursement. The European Commission intends to try to promote this kind of reforms in the context of its normal surveillance procedures. We know, as what I said before, that before COVID, these procedures were highly ineffectual. And there is nothing that makes me believe that they will not be even more ineffectual in the post-COVID political in environment. Fundamentally, for, 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 the, for, for this European support to transform into a significant reduction in North-South structural fragmentation, uh, we need to see policy U-turns, and this is what I will talk about now, at both the European and the national level that so far are not in sight. Italy is a particularly important. 
It had decades of low growth as it neither had political support for reforms nor had the fiscal space to expand. Now it will have very significant fiscal space to expand and the question is whether it will have the will to reform. The new government is promising some key reforms uh, that are good, but nothing has been adopted so far. The IMF report that came out this morning estimate the long-term impact of the Italian program to be a modest 0.1 to 0.2% of GDP. Italy now has, again has a technocratic prime minister. The experience with the ability of technocratic prime ministers without a mandate from the electorate to overcome deeply entrenched resistance to reform is not very good. Since Italy has a distressing record of announcing but not implementing reforms, it is much too early to conclude that the reforms are finally gaining a critical mass of support. To many, in many ways, this has very much been driven, the whole thing, by concern about Italy. And I think Italy not wasting the support is absolutely critical for Europe's ability to deal with future shocks, for, for other part of Europe to be willing to deal with future shocks. So the implications for debt and why it still matters. COVID-19 will entail a significant increase in debt. It will be much less than if there had been no European support. If and this is a thought experiment. Assume that the long-term impact of COVID is the same as the long-term impact of the previous crisis. And assume that during the recovery from COVID, we have the same pro-cyclicality in these countries that we saw during after the, the Euro crisis. Then debt to GDP of France and Spain will be broadly like Italy before the crisis. Italy broadly like Greece and Greece further off the chart. Now, the outcome could be better. It's probably going to be somewhat better, especially if the massive fiscal support is su successful in limiting uh, uh, impairment of balance sheet and, and adverse spillovers to the financial sector. But a large increase in debt to GDP is un unavoidable. The IMF report from this morning estimates the Italian debt will, will peak at 160% of GDP, up from 135. This, in, in my view, is still quite optimistic assumption. Okay, you have all heard the argument, debt doesn't matter, the R minus G debate, interest rate will stay low for forever, don't worry about debt. I am not convinced about that. A sobering reminder to all of you, the euro area crisis originated in a huge monetary windfall as interest rate in these countries went down. Mismanagement of this windfall. And there was a further windfall after the euro area crisis because of low policy rate. And as I said before, that has been spent and spent poorly. So the notion that monetary windfall, even if there is some of it still ahead of us, you know, allows a paradigm shift. This is only a paradigm shift if it starts being spent well. Otherwise, it is really more of the same. One also need to be careful. You, you have heard about, uh, you have seen the recent concern about inflation. I think policy rate will not stay for as long as many people expect. But leave aside all of this. Assume that there is more fiscal space. Assume policy rate will stay long. My question is, is that really very relevant for a country like France, where the political economy odds are so much against controlling debt that have seen a six-fold increase in debt since 1980? 
is it really very relevant for the post-COVID policy priority to know that the debt cliff is a bit further away than you thought that it was before? Sure, it's good. You know, you have more you have more space to react to the crisis, and that's fine. But it will not change your post-crisis political priorities, which is fiscal structural reform, to try to stop this this fast increase in debt. This brings me to a, a point that, that, that worries me. We are seeing very large fiscal expansions everywhere. I am all for a strong counter-cyclical fiscal response to the crisis. I have no problem with that. But it needs to be done in the context of medium-term, credible medium-term program. These countries need at the same time to explain how they're going to come back on track. The problem, the problem is that there was a gap even before the crisis between where they were and where they should be in order to reduce debt. And that gap was unfulfilled because there was no support for reforms. And just pushing this in front of, of us is not credible. Doing so will mean that post-COVID, these countries will again be under pressure uh, for what we call austerity in the most growth-unfriendly and socially unfair uh, way through uh, ad hoc spending cut. This is not good. Uh, I would not support this. This, is, uh, this was unsustainable before the crisis. It will be even more unsustainable after the crisis. It will result in pro-cyclicality during the recovery, further increase in debt and vulnerabilities, and need for more bailouts. This is a time where I want to recall a lesson for the Greek crisis. As, as Kevin said, I am very much associated with this and have taken a lot of criticism for how we did it. And a lot of it, uh, I think, is, is in retrospect actually very relevant. Greece's private creditors were bailed out because of systemic risk. The, the euro area had no firewall to prevent contagion. This was criticized for causing excessive austerity in Greece and for unnecessarily politicizing the debt problem by making it a north-south political issue inside the eurozone. Why? Because in the future, uh, uh, Greek debt could only be alleviated by, 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 by putting the burden on European taxpayers. Europe is again bailing out private creditors, even though it has a, credit, a crisis mechanism. I accept that the risk of bailing are significant, and I accept one might, might uh, want to continue with, with bailouts. But it's inevitable if we bail out on, on this scale, it will cause a future north-south politicization of the current debt issues, unless we see these policy U-turn at the national European levels that I talked about before. One problem with that, there are many problems, is that since the ECB is in forefront of the bailout this time, this will mean that we are setting it up for a significant politicization of the ECB rather than of the Euro group. That brings me to monetary policy. As I said, men mentioned before, the northern countries are expected to have a much faster V-shaped recovery than the southern countries. This, and I think this difference would be larger this time because of the severity of the shock that hits uh, the south. This means that these tensions that were started to emerge uh, before COVID will, will re-emerge with, with, with a vengeance, I think, and recall the concern globally about fiscal dominance, the notion that with all this public debt, uh, uh, monetary policy uh, will be under pressure to, to not to normalize. 
I think it's a very serious problem, and it's particularly for the euro area where it will exacerbate the existing north-south political differences on monetary policy. Uh, the ECB will be under 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 very strong pressure uh, or the political conflict inside the ECB even before the recovery. Uh, starts uh, producing calls for, recover, for, for normalization of monetary policy because there will be pressure to stop deviating from the key, uh, stop target intervention. Intervening in line with the key is a critical part of the European court's ruling regarding the concern of monetization that has been raised by the German constitutional court. And I cannot see how one cannot be forced to go back to the key well before recovery takes uh, place. And here, obviously, Italy could be a flashpoint. The politicization of the, EC, politicization of the ECB is already quite apparent. You have seen uh, that we have had periodically Italian uh, 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 you know, advisors to politicians calling for a right, the ECB to write off Italian debt. The ECB itself actually has called for North-South permanent fiscal transfers, which is quite extraordinary. Central bankers are all always very sensitive to when politicians and, 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 and uh, Ministry of Finance officials interfere in monetary affairs. And they therefore always made a point not for themselves to interfere in the affairs of others. And for, for central banks to call about, call for North-South permanent fiscal transfers is actually an extraordinary move on part of the ECB. Okay, I'm almost at the end. The one country, one vote means that the decision by the governing council will reflect the, you, the diverse socio-political view on the role of central banks uh, and the historical experience with inf inflation as it should be. The notion that the ECB is this sort of clone copy of, of, of the Bundesbank with a Bundesbank type independence, I think would prove to be a myth. Uh, it's an illusion to see the EBC as, ECB as a technical body that by simply adhering to a simple rule like inflation target, can reconcile the fundamental all-result differences among member states uh, uh, arising from the fact that one is not making progress to a political union. If you use the ECB to pave over this now, you will definitely politicize the ECB. Okay, what are the policy implications? Uh, I, I said that this will only work with U-turns. We have not seen U-turns from the trend that were in place before. COVID, I don't think we have seen that yet. Uh, I agree, we certainly need uh, 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 to give a chance for the current approach to work, uh, to, to these U-turns uh, 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 to happen. Uh, uh, it will be, it's too early to conclude that they have not. But if they don't, I think the ECB should, at a really early, early stage, stop uh, 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 deviating from the key under its normal monetary operation and provide target support only under the OMT, as originally had been uh, promised, which requires a program. Now, I have had a, a long and in many ways painful experience uh, working on, 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 uh, no, on this kind of, 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 of programs. The Troika had no legitimacy, as I said, and I think it would be very difficult to make these things work. In that case, I think there's no other way, if that proves to be the case, to go for early debt restructurings. Uh, and by that, one could take it, it doesn't need to, you know, one could do it in the very, initially at least, in a very benign form or simply of rolling over. The point is to stop the transfer of risks to, 
to uh, uh, taxpayers. This is basically it. Let me leave you with an afterthought. I know that many people, uh, you will say, well, there's no really big deal uh, what you are projecting because that's just a rough and tumble road to full integration, like the process that forced United States into a political union. Contrary to the United States, in the United States, we have a few very small states that is a, that sort of receive transfer from what otherwise is a dynamic whole. In the euro area, you essentially have one third that is highly vulnerable, one third that is AAA, and a group in between one third that is gradually, you know, like France is in that group that lost its AAA rating. Uh, and if you get further and further into a transfer union without solving the governance problem I talked about, this will be a drag on euro areas convergence already euro areas is, is, is diverging from, from for years uh, from for instance from the, from the United States and uh, uh, I once you not exaggerate this will not be dramatic it will not be noticeable over in real time but over time it could be significant. Much more and this is my last point is in my view the political dimension of it and here I, I sort of speak from a painful memory also. I have been around the table when Europe approved 300 billion of support for Greece, an economy of 180 billion, tenfold what we have seen anywhere in the world. And now 750 billion to help vulnerable countries manage the COVID. During that period, it was very difficult to get Europe to come up with more than a couple of billion to support Ukraine, to stabilize a country that is uh, you know, at, uh, uh, in the military conflict on the Eastern border. It, uh, or only a few billion for its initiative of Africa, uh, which was, you know, which is an attempt to to preempt the future refugee crisis in the face of in the face of a demographic tide bombs south of the border. I am really concerned that that in some ways the euro is a saps the, the the political energy of Europe, and it sort of is, is one of the reasons why it's sometimes one of the reasons why it's sometimes inward looking and frustratingly timid in pursuing its strategic objectives. So I'm going to stop here and look forward uh, to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, very much indeed. I'm pleased that it's sunny outside because um, you've hardly lifted our spirits with your uh, presentation. But uh, thank you for uh, going against uh, the prevailing trends. Let me try to pick up a few points and then uh, I'm inviting the audience to send us their questions using the Q&A facility at the bottom of your uh, screen. Let me start off. Uh, Paul, you've said very clearly that you support the counter-cyclical uh, investment that comes from the uh, recovery uh, fund. But you say that the current debt levels are unsustainable. I see that in relation to Greece, the IMF yesterday said, quote, public debt remains sustainable over the medium term. Now, it did recognize that if there was a severe shock uh, in the future, then Greece would need uh, further help. But its emphasis was that over the medium term, that which we can see, Greece's public debt uh, was sustainable. So, how far are you disagreeing with your former IMF colleagues here? Well, uh, first of all, I know how you know, 
what a difficult spot they are in. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, saying that debt is sustainable, but that one need help with shocks doesn't make any sense. By that definition, any debt in the world is sustainable, uh, right? Uh, 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 and, and saying that debt is sustainable in the medium term, when we just come out of the mother of all bailouts and transfers from the, from, from the North, uh, which is actually still in front of us in the coming next couple of months. Say, you know, uh, uh, clearly Europe, Europe is in a situation where it cannot deal with shocks without this kind of, 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 of transfers. I think Greece is a good example. You know, when back in 2012, Europe said that if debt falls, debt has to go below 120% of GDP in order to be, to be sustainable. That was the IMF uh, sort of threshold at that time. Three years later, even though debt was going up, Europe changed to that they can live with debt of 180, close to 200%. And they did that by extending the pr projection period for decades, right? And by having assumption about growth that were not in line with sort of, you know, inconsistent with the fact that the government is undoing some. Uh, reforms. Now during COVID, after COVID, I heard them the other day say that they're even more happy, or the ESM, about uh, more assured about Greek debt sustainability. I haven't seen their projections, but clearly debt will be up close to twice of this 120. I don't know, 220, 230, 240. I don't know. But we are still happy about debt. This is that really credible? Yes, in case of Greece, you know, all the debts sit on the European balance sheets already. And Europe is not going to trigger a crisis that it can prevent by quietly in the back room just rolling over that debt. So I am not, I am not concerned about uh, 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 Greece. But it's different with Italy, where it relies on market access. And so that's a diff to to okay. totally uh, uh, different issue. And that will be a sense of tensions, I think. Okay. In today's Financial Times, uh, Wolfgang Schäuble, uh, who I think is described as the uh, dark prince of debt, Wolfgang Schäuble in today's uh, Financial Times uh, says that really the only way out for the Eurozone is to agree on what he calls a debt redemption pact. And this, uh, he says, is the true uh, interpretation of a Hamiltonian moment mm -hmm. for the Eurozone. Mm -hmm. uh, some years ago, people like Peter Bofinger and others did a, a paper for the CEPR in Brussels, in which they were arguing for a Eurozone um, debt redemption pact. Essentially, in, in this kind of uh, proposal, member states' debts over a 60% threshold would be separated out. Member states could refinance themselves from the redemption fund, but the Eurozone uh, would accept joint liability for the debt in return for domestic uh, reforms. Would that be a good solution? I saw the article, I saw it when I had breakfast and, and it, it made me chuckle a bit when I was uh, 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 reading it. Uh, it is quite Frank, it is quite unusual for a politician in one member country to publicly criticize politician in other member countries uh, by name. And, 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 and Schäuble did that. It was, a, it was a warning to Italy, right? Uh, and so I'll just say, check your calendar. 
the German elections are coming up. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, now, now, would it would it be would it be a good solution? Uh, so you know, the article doesn't provide the details that are important, namely what are the conditions. You're right about this group of influential uh, German economists that made a similar proposal uh, during the late last crisis, which made accents to the front conditional on countries agreeing to a German-style constitutional debt break. So, uh, 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 mm. uh, uh, no, and that's that's the brutal reality of a currency union that is not a political union. That Germany and other countries in the north are not going to agree on debt neutralization without a mechanism for interfering in the economic policies of the countries benefiting from sub neutralization. And the fact is, these countries never signed up for accepting sort of uh, no. Such such uh, such an, an inter, inter, in, interference. Uh, uh, you cannot expect surplus countries to agree to mutualize debt without conditions. Uh, uh, but I also understand why uh, uh, you know, uh, people in the south were never were never asked to vote for whether uh, uh, their pension age should be set in 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 in, in Brussels. Uh, uh, until one has a solution on this, and this will either require much more progress on political union or rules that keep these decisions at the national level, but that are effective. You're not going to get a solution before you have one of one, either of the two. And I'm very pessimistic. I'm very, I hope for political integration. It's not going to be in my lifetime. Uh, 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 and uh, I am deeply skeptical about the ability to enforce uh, uh, rules. Uh, uh, that's why I say, that's why I favor an early debt restructuring uh, uh, in, in these countries, because it just stops the transfer of the risk and keep the risk where it belongs. No investors who decide to invest in, in these countries. Okay. I think you put it very clearly that um, either... Um, if the European Union is a transfer union, then it needs either a political union or it needs rules to be enforced at the national level. In the absence of those, then we're back to conditionality and something like uh, a troika. Um, and the, the, the conditionality would become uh, difficult. Now, in your presentation, much of your focus on uh, Southern Europe was to say that the appropriate structural reforms were not made. Uh, and in, that necessitated uh, austerity. And you say that uh, the debt sustainability would be uh, made greater if there were the public sector uh, reforms. Now, isn't there a problem there of the time span in the sense that the gains that a member state might get from public sector reforms are very much in the long term. But we're talking about crises in which uh, there is a need for budget cuts in the short term. So isn't austerity therefore inevitable, even if we have member states uh, committed to effective public sector reform on a longer term basis? So I... You know, I don't see that inconsistency. As I said, I am fully for a very strong countercyclical response uh, yeah. dur during during crisis. But what I want to see is that we use the crisis all, also to get 
approval of the necessary structural reforms that are needed in, you know, that we don't waste the crisis, if you want to put it, use the old adage, right? Don't waste the crisis, use it to get support for these reforms. This notion of just saying, well, we'll do that in the future, have proved to have a profound lack of credibility. It never happens, and this is why we go into these ad hoc measures that are, that are, that are uh, you know, uh, socially unfair and, and, and take a toll on growth. And I, I'd be perfectly fine with having fiscal rules that allow country a long period, you no, know, a longer period to come down, something that is in tune with, with, with how long these take for these structural reforms to produce results. I, I have no problem uh, with that. I, I, I fully agree with those who said that we, uh, that uh, after the crisis uh, last time, uh, Europe too put on the, 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 uh, the brakes too fast, uh, had fiscal tightening too fast. I, I agree with that. Uh, 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 it's complicated because the fiscal rules required that. But one reason for that was also that the fiscal rules had not been adhered to in the way into the crisis. So it's all very complicated. But I, I definitely accept the, the argument of strong countercyclical response. And I definitely accept that one should give it time to you know, before one start reversing it. But I really want to see them spend political capital on, 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 on how to get back. Okay, you said a lot about the north-south differences within the uh, Eurozone area mm-hmm. and uh, the difficulties of uh, the north living with the south and vice versa. Are you saying that uh, including the south in the Eurozone is actually um, almost impossible? It's a mistake. It was a mistake and it shouldn't have been done. Uh well, I, uh, I, I certainly uh, say that uh, uh, so this is a political project. Uh, this is clearly a, a north-south political project. And the fact that we are seeing huge number of young people from Greece and Italy leaving the countries in search for, for, uh, no, for, for better paying job in, in, in Northern uh, Europe. And this has been going on for decades, uh, for, for years. Uh, and and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's higher than it has been uh, from, from, for many, many decades. I mean, that's, that's what economics is all about, right? Pro- 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 providing a, a basis uh, that, you know, for people to, to, to have, have good jobs. And in, so from that perspective, it's a clear failure, right? It has an, a very high economic Cost. It's interesting to compare it with North, this North-South so far political failure with what I see as a spectacularly successful East-West. The EU should be very, very proud of what is achieved in terms of, of integration of Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Eastern Europe has converged with a speed that is fully at par with what we saw in Japan and Korea in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And this shows that these political projects can work if there is a strong ownership. And there is a strong ownership because these countries have enthusiastically embraced the European acquis communautaire and, and, and the integration process. So far, it has not been possible to generate a similar response uh, uh, no, to, get, to get countries, as I said, to sort of adopt the structural reforms. So far, this thing about if you put countries in a nominal straitjacket, it was an argument 
that economists love because they were exasperated with all this resistance to reforms. And, and, and particularly in Greece and Italy, that notion was embraced with enthusiasm. You know, just give the power to the Brussels and they will force our political leaders uh, 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 you know, in, in, into making changes. Nowhere was this as strong in Greece and Italy, and nowhere has the naivety of that, that assumption so far been proved as being uh, you know, as, 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 as much as in, in Greece and Italy. So, uh, okay, let's go to the questions which are coming in, and I'm going to try to go through as many questions as I can. So I'm going to invite you to just to give uh, short answers mm -hmm. as far as you can, please. Uh, this is an LSE webinar, so uh, the first question comes uh, from Kathmandu in Nepal, uh, Druba Pedal, um, and she says that uh, the diverse effects of COVID on the EU demands treating EU countries very differently. To what extent can the European Union accommodate that difference of treatment? Well, I, so I, I am I am not sure what is meant by the question, but but the the fact the fact that Europe is pr providing transfers, right, uh, is 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 the, the the ultimate acceptance of that some countries require uh, help from from others. That is certainly a, a, the, the, the it's the ultimate example of European solidarity, if you want. Uh, okay, uh, I guess. So Implicit in the question might have been a point that the agenda of reforms uh, would have to differ from one country to another. And uh, to what extent does that make the task of the European Union at the uh, European level more difficult to accommodate uh, tailor-made uh, reform agendas? Well, I, I don't think, uh, you know, I, I don't think one can have tailor-made agendas in the sense that, uh, particularly when you talk about structural reforms, the problems are actually, uh, yeah, at a very general level, it's about making economies more flexible. But, but uh, uh, you know, it's, it's going into uh, to often idiosyncratic elements of, of, uh, of labor markets, of markets for closed markets for goods and services, and, and it would have to be targeted on that. So by no means can you... Can you sort of uh, 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 have a tailor-made made, made approach uh, for sure? Okay. Uh, having been to Kathmandu, now let's come back to the LSE. Our colleague Ian Begg, uh, Paul, your analysis was largely macroeconomic. A year ago, when the European Union's Recovery and Resilience Fund was in gestation, economies were suffering a sharp contraction. Now economies are at the start of a post-lockdown boom. However, some sectors, such as tourism or hospitality, may now face enduring problems. Is the recovery fund too late to be a fiscal stimulus, as in the United States, yet too focused on green and digital initiatives to deal with the post-COVID structural problems? Are we setting the wrong priorities at the wrong time? I think that is. I think that is an excellent uh, 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 question. I think you know the 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 as I said that the the green issues, uh, you know, digitalization, are Im Im important. I am concerned about that it is chosen because it's politically uh, popular. I can see. Uh, you know, I, I much like what Ian says here that. 
this is a lot of money. You know, my my friends in Italy are even taken back about how much money money is 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 coming there coming their way. And certainly, that I can see a case for for uh, uh, setting you know supporting what Ian calls sort of micro micro conditionality linked to the problem of the country in uh, in tourism. I I wouldn't know how to do that. I'm not an expert on 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 that. But but for sure, uh, uh, I I would I would I would be very supportive of that. And what I have seen so far. Uh, that that is not being done, but uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, you know, it, it's it's a uh, it's a uh, uh, it's another explanation at the macro macro level why these countries will 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 recover more slowly, which is an argument for providing uh, assistance for a longer period. Uh, okay, there's uh, some questions coming in specifically on Greece, so let's uh, mm-hmm. deal with. Uh, the Greek question. And One day I will be in a meeting where I will not be asked about Greece. One day. Who could aspire to such a situation? Uh, Costas Servas uh, says, um, if Paul agrees with the approach in dealing with the COVID crisis, why was he supporting the opposite in the Greek crisis? So could you clarify your logical consistency between uh, the Troika and the Greek crisis and today's COVID situation. Right. So I think that the thing that uh, in the Greek crisis, uh, 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 I think that two things were, that I think we got wrong. We were much, much too optimistic about the supply response of the economy, which means we were much, much too optimistic about the debt servicing capacity of the country. Uh, I think in retrospect, we did a serious mistake uh, on the debt side. I think, and you and I, Kevin, has actually talked about this before. Uh, I think that uh, 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 while I accept the argument that one did a debt restructuring not did a debt restructuring because of systemic concerns. Uh, 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 When you are a policymaker, when you sit in the IMF like I did at that time, you know, your concern is the system also, right? And you have to think about the stability of the system. And there was was concern about spillovers with no no ESM, no, no firewall. But clearly, we should have said to the Northern European, we can bail out now, but you need to do a debt restructuring down the road. And we should have sort of preempted this. You know, uh, while this was a technical issue, we should have kept it a technical issue and said, and not let it sort of uh, uh, evolve into this severe, unresolvable North-South political issue uh, of, 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 of the poor German taxpayers uh, having to, to, to cover for, a, for a, a, a debt restructuring in Greece. It was a big mistake. And uh, uh, this is this is why I'm saying now, let's learn that lesson and let's move early to a debt restructuring and stop the further transfer of risks, which uh, uh, which 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 uh, okay. uh, took, took place. Yeah. Thank you. A question from another colleague, uh, Vasilis Monoskriotis at the LSE, uh, who is actually the lead on the Lex discussion paper series of which this event is part. Vasilis writes, I get the sense that reforms are often seen as a panacea, 
easier to say we need reforms, more difficult to find the right mix of policies, including ones that are more in the direction of re-regulation uh, in order to be able to generate fast growth without severe distributional consequences. The logic of the EU's recovery fund is more in the direction of supporting industrial transformation or upgrading in line with the wider policy context of industrial policy and smart specialization. You seem to have dismissed this quite quickly on the basis that this will take far too much time to bear fruit. But why should we believe that reforms will be any more effective, the kind of reforms that you're advocating? Why is the strategy of supporting productive capacities inferior to the catch-all strategy of pushing for structural reforms? So I think there's there's two two parts of it. Uh, I uh, I accept that often uh, reforms are sort of being thrown in as this panacea, and that it is uh, the the experience with reforms is 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 very uh, mixed. I uh, we we have some examples of reforms that worked very well. Uh, now Spain is one example where you saw where you had some uh, labor market reforms and there was a very very strong supply response. Uh, uh, you have in, in Northern Europe you have hard reforms. You have other countries that have successfully adopted to a changing world. I think the the, the point I've been making is that I'm I don't deny the European. Uh, 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 ability to reform, uh, but it has to be with ownership. It has to be that the domestic body politic has come around to understand this has to be done. Hopefully that's what's happening in France. Uh, uh, we shall see. But I don't believe that you can impose reform or incentivize reform from outside. It has to come from inside. The, the, that's the experience of the Troika. That's the experience of the IMF. I think in the 40 years I've been at the IMF, I you know, it is one lesson I have, reforms that are imposed uh, from outside will not stick. The second part of the, the question, I, uh, uh, I am not saying that, uh, no, that the investment digitalization, they could have some positive long-term effect in a, no, particularly an area where there's significant public sector, private sector complementarities like digitalization, but all our economic theory tells us that this uh, will be you know, limited. That's why the IMF comes up with these projections for Italy that says long, long run, it's 0.1, 0.2 uh, uh, that they came up with. Uh, and I'm sure there will be some. I mean, with 750 billion, something has to give and, and, and you know, something positive has, has to come out of it. But Europe, this is my, 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 my critical uh, question. The, the fundamental structural differences will no the, the low the low productivity will, uh, will these these differences are not going to be solved by this green recovery and, and digitalization. This requires to make these economies more flexible, and that is painful. Tries opening up closed profession, making labor markets uh, 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 more 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 flexible, and. Uh, 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 you know, the, the, the fact is, yes, it's good that, that you know, Greece and others do these uh, uh, 
you know, these, these digitalization and whatever it is, but so does uh, other countries in Europe. It's a, it's a, it's a fast moving target, right? And uh, it's, uh, uh, I, I don't think that that will stem the, the, the continued outflow of, of, of young people from these countries in search of, of, of better life in the north. In that, they need to have a public sector that can provide basic public services. They need to have a, a, a flexibility in labor markets uh, and, and et cetera. Okay, we're coming to the end, unfortunately. Uh, this has been uh, fascinating, but I wonder if I could just squeeze in a last question, uh, Poole, and I guess it's a kind of uh, optimistic, pessimistic sort of uh, question uh, here. Um, you're saying that the European Recovery and Resilience Fund uh, may be working with the wrong agenda, with the wrong mechanisms, lacks conditionality, uh, etc. If in five years' time, the conclusion is that the Recovery Fund didn't really achieve its objectives, would you say that the, the impact for the European Union would be much more wider than that, that the European Union might face some kind of existential crisis if the Recovery Fund fails? Just briefly, if you may. I, you mean, uh, uh, I mean, I, I do think, I do think that existential crises are baked into the DNA of the euro area as long as it has not resolved this issue of, of political integration or, or alternative compliance with, with the rules. Europe, euro area will have further existential crisis down the road with or without COVID. I think COVID is, uh, you know, could have sort of brought that, uh, mean that we, we have less room for maneuver down the road. In that sense, it could be, bring it closer. I do think, and I accept that, if, uh, if I am wrong, if, uh, if, 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 the, if there is a very strong response, uh, if the reforms, uh, if, they, if these countries receive these big funds, undertake big reforms, uh, 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 and that Europe can see the money is put to good use, uh, uh, then I also think it will profoundly affect Europe's willingness to be supportive down, down, down the road. And that's why I'm saying is, is that I mean, this is to a large, to, to an input, not only, but this is to a large extent about Italy. And I, I think that uh, if, if, if Italy uh, sees spending this money well, I think that is, that is really good news for the euro area's ability to handle crisis down the road. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, on that basis, then surely we should invite you back in three or five years' time to discuss these same questions uh, okay. again. Let's put it in the calendar. But uh, we are out of time. Um, I thank everyone for uh, watching and for the many questions that have come in. Apologies, I wasn't able to uh, take more of the questions. But I uh, thank very much indeed uh, Paul Thompson for uh, giving us his uh, reflections and uh, raising so many uh, issues. Let me finish by uh, suggesting that you look at the European Institute's website here at the LSE for upcoming events. You can look at the school's website uh, for upcoming events. And uh, as this has been part of the uh, European Institute's uh, discussion paper series, uh, please look at our website to see the many excellent publications which you can download. But wherever you are, Kathmandu, London, 
uh, wherever. Thank you for watching and good night.